So John 17, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's God's word this morning. This chapter 17 of John, what it is really is one big prayer prayed by Jesus. We often call it the high priestly prayer. Martin Luther was the leader of the Reformation in Germany, and and he said this about this prayer. This is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. Jesus opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple, it is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. And we haven't read the whole thing, of course, but you get a sense of that right off the bat in the first five verses. John Knox, he's the guy who led the Reformation in the 1500s in Scotland. He apparently knew something about prayer because Mary, Queen of Scotland, said she feared John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. Well, we're told that that man of prayer had John 17 read to him regularly throughout his final days, and it was a great comfort and a great source of strength to him before he went home to be with the Lord. It's usually called the high priestly prayer, this prayer, but at least one person thinks it makes more sense to call it the Lord's Prayer. What we call the Lord's Prayer is not something Jesus ever prayed, if you think about it, right? Jesus couldn't pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He never sinned. He gave that prayer as an outline for what we should pray. So we might really call that more accurately the disciples' prayer. And and we might think of John 17 as the real Lord's Prayer because it's Jesus praying. We read all the time that Jesus prayed in the Gospels. But have you ever thought about what he exactly said to the Father on all of those occasions? We know he prayed all the time. But we're at, we actually aren't given much of that. We know, you know, he says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me in Gethsemane. But other than that, we don't really get a whole lot. We just get glimpses and we sort of have ideas of what Jesus prayed. And, and, and don't we value the prayers of of those people that, that we respect spiritually. You know, maybe it's a, a, a well-known pastor that, that we listen to. Or, or for me, I think of, of the prayers of my grandpas. My grandpa Shuringa, who just went to heaven in June. My grandpa Post, Paca, who's still living. Boy, I listen carefully to those prayers. And, and can't you sometimes hear in your mind the phrases of those prayers of people that that you've respected, the wording that you want to model your prayer after. Well, 
And think about what we've got here. Something so rare in the Bible. The content of our Lord Jesus Christ's prayer. His actual words. He prayed it out loud, right? Or John wouldn't have been able to record it. And so we know Jesus wanted his disciples to hear this prayer. It's kind of like the veil is being pulled back and we get a glimpse into the Holy of Holies, Jesus praying to the Father, this inner communication between these persons of the Trinity. Luther, Luther had a friend named Melanchthon, and he said this about this prayer, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime, than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. We're treading on holy ground this morning, and I'm emphasizing this because I don't know how much we really think about that and how much, you know, how many of us know people who've had John 17 read to them in their last hours. But it could just be that, that we're missing a little bit the richness of John 17. And, and we're probably going to spend a, a couple Sundays at least, maybe three in this prayer, just the first five verses this morning. But what do we hear? What, what can we learn? And, and I really think there are three things that stand out as we approach, especially the first five verses this morning. And first of all, the real Lord's Prayer, and I'm, I'm sort of saying that in quotes, the real Lord's Prayer shows us that prayer is at the center of the mission of Jesus Christ. All right? Jesus came on this earth to live among us for a while in order to save us, in order to establish his kingdom. Well, prayer was an important part of that mission. We think of the miracles of Jesus and his teachings, but he also prayed a lot. He prayed at his baptism, before and after miracles. He prayed for the little children. He regularly went off to a solitary place to pray. He prayed just before selecting the 12 disciples. He was transfigured at the Mount of Transfiguration as he was praying. He prayed approaching the cross. He prayed on the cross. And he prays here. Chapters 14, 15, 16 are filled with a lot of teaching. And and a lot of people call that Jesus' farewell discourse. 14 through 16 is really a big sermon. And then right after this, Jesus, Judas is going to betray Jesus and they're going to take him away. A sermon of Jesus preaching is really important, which what these other chapters are, because it's bringing the disciples God's word. But does Jesus leave them only with a sermon before going to the cross, as important as that is? No. He doesn't leave it at that. He preaches, and then he prays. Another quote. i got a few quotes this morning. I hope you don't mind. A.W. Pink writes about this. After we've done all we can to edify those around us, we should in prayer and supplication beseech God, pray to Him, to bless the objects of our care and the means we have employed for their welfare. And then this is from John Calvin, also on John 17, about the same thing. 
doctrine, so teaching, has no power unless God from above blesses it. Christ holds out an example here to teach them not only to be busy about sowing the word, but to be mingling prayers with it, to implore, to ask the assistance of God that his blessing may render their labors fruitful. So you think of the importance of Jesus' teaching in his ministry. And after his teaching, the next most important thing we'd say is that he went to the cross right here. After his teaching, before the cross, you've got this fervent prayer to the Father. Prayer was central to all that Jesus did and came to do too. And it's got to be the same for us. This Martin Luther guy who valued this prayer so much said this once about prayer. And after I read it, I want you to just keep it up for a little bit, Mary. If I should neglect prayer... But a single day, I should lose a great deal of the fire of my faith. As we think about prayer, the center of Jesus' calling, and, and what, about, what about us and our calling, our, our mission and purpose in life? Uh, so I, I want to ask you, first, how is the fire of your faith this morning? How's and where is the passion? How's your excitement for the Lord and for His work and for His church? Well, what Luther's suggesting is another way to answer that is to say, how is your prayer life? If your prayer life is full and rich and regular, then comes the fire of the faith. And and when I think about my prayer life, over the months, over the years, and the fire of my faith, I'm pretty sure I can find a correlation between how rich and regular my prayer life was and, and whether I was on fire for the Lord. And, and I, I really think Luther was on to something. So may, may prayer be central to Jesus' disciples today in our callings day by day, just as it was for Jesus back then. That's my encouragement to you and urging to you. Second this morning, we see that the real Lord's prayer exalts the glory of God. We have this emphasis on God's glory. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Verse 1, verse 4, I have brought you glory with an emphasis on the glory of God is how this whole prayer that lasts a whole chapter begins. The Westminster Catechism famously asks, first question right off the bat, what is the chief end of man? The answer, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. They just pull that out of a hat Well, they get that from places like 1 Corinthians 10.31. And I'd like us to read this together. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. If the glory of God is the central purpose of all life, then it also makes sense that it's the central purpose of our prayers. 
And that makes sense when you compare this prayer, the high priestly prayer, to the Lord's prayer where Jesus models for us. How does he say to begin our prayers? Hallowed be thy name. That's the first petition about the glory of God's name. And so Jesus' prayer exalts the glory of God, as all our prayers should do. But then we've got a little bit of a puzzle. Jesus doesn't just pray for God's glory. Jesus prays for his own glory. Did you notice that? Glorify your son, he says to the father. Glorify me. Did that sound just a little bit interesting to you? A little puzzling? Is Jesus being selfish here? Well, that's impossible. Jesus is perfect. And his prayer is perfect. And and of course, one way to think about this is Jesus is fully God. John's Gospel highlights that more than any other Gospel. So Jesus praying for his glory, his own glory, if it's not exactly the same, it's at least similar to praying for God's glory because he is God. He's one of the three persons of the Trinity. There's a reason, I believe, though, that Jesus prays for his glory here especially, and it has to do with his special task, his assignment given from all eternity as the Son in salvation. And and before I do that, I want to tell you something briefly here about God's glory and how to understand it and and what it means. And, And if it's to be our chief end, our chief purpose, God's glory, well, we might want to be eager to learn something of the glory of God, right? Glory in Greek, it's the original language of the New Testament, it's doxa, all right? Glory is doxa. You know the word doxology, a song or word of praise, of glory. So doxa, or glory, it's about praise, it's about honor, it's about renown. And in Psalm 24, when it talks about God as the king of glory, we're lifted up to God and who he is and all that he is, all his attributes. Doxa also makes us think of another word, orthodox. You've heard of that word? Someone who is orthodox has right belief. But it literally means someone who is right in their understanding of God. Orthodox and his attributes and his glory. And and so the glory of God refers to God himself, everything he is, his attributes, love, faithfulness, holiness, all the rest. That is not the glory, I believe, that Jesus is praying for. Because Jesus never lost that glory when he became man. He stayed fully God. But there's another piece to this glory that has Hebrew origins. And it's the Shekinah glory. Second Chronicles 7.1 King Solomon is dedicating the temple. When Solomon finished praying... Fire came down from heaven, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests couldn't even enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of God was filling it. 
So this is glory, meaning God's special presence, an outward appearance of God with a display of light and radiance. It's so glorious, no one could approach it like Moses on the mountain. And when God passed by, he had to hold his hand to shield Moses or he'd be blown away. This is the glory Jesus is praying for here, I believe. In eternity, verse 5, the Son became man. Jesus had glory both ways. All of God's attributes and character and the outward visible glory. But then, what do we read? Jesus humbled Himself. He took on human flesh. He somehow laid aside His glory. And some people think that means somehow He stopped being God in part. Certain attributes of God he let go. But he did not stop being God. He kept all the attributes of God. But this outward glory, that was laid aside for a time. He voluntarily was humiliated. And the low point or the high point really of that humiliation will be the cross. And then he'll rise again, and his glorification would start happening until he reached the right hand of God. So with his work about to be completed, he's going to be glorified again in that outward sense. Stephen, people are being martyred for the faith today, that first martyr of the faith, Stephen, we bow in the that he saw Jesus in that glory when he was stoned. John, when he got those visions on the island of Patmos that became the book of Revelation, he saw Jesus in that glory. We're going to see that glory in glory in heaven one day. And Jesus is in that fully glorified state again right now. Different than he was when he was hanging out with his disciples. The Jesus we worship now is full of a splendor that we can't even imagine. And that's why we worship Him and glorify Him and exalt Him in our living, in our prayers. We've seen the centrality of prayer in Jesus' mission, the exaltation of the glory of God, and thirdly and finally, we see that the real Lord's prayer overflows with good for God's people. In the first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself in a sense. But then verses 6 all the way to the end are all specific prayer requests for us, for the church in the centuries later. And, and, and we're going to get into that starting next week. But you've got to know, even this prayer for the glory of our God is for Your benefit, it's for your good. Because how is Jesus going to glorify his Father? It's by finishing his big work that he was sent to do. What is the work of Jesus? Well, of course, it's the salvation of God's people. Jesus talks here about the people the Father has given. Salvation gives God's glory. And so God's glory, it's for our good. What's good for God is good for us. Earlier, not this week, I think it was the week before, I again watched 
the highest grossing movie of all time with my two oldest daughters, Hannah and Olivia, who had never seen it. You know what the highest grossing movie of all time is, of course, right? It's Avatar. $2.7 billion worldwide, far and above any other movie in history. As I watched it, I was really reminded of why it was so big. There's a, a lot of good stuff and good storytelling there. Some kind of goofy stuff, too, where those tall blue aliens, you remember them? The Natiri, they have this relationship with their land. It's very mystical. They live in tune with nature. The one impacts the other. There's this symbiotic relationship. That movie really misses the Christian view of God and the world and us and how that works. But there's a nugget of truth there by God's common grace because we are called to have this connection, this fellowship, this communion, this relationship with God, a God who we know is separate from, he's outside nature, but who does call us created in his image into a special communion with him. It's interesting in verse 3, we don't have time for it, but eternal life is defined here as a knowledge of God. God's glory is for our good, and in verse 22, Jesus says something incredible where that communion, that relationship, it's... It's almost mystical. It's beyond what we can get. Jesus says later, I didn't read it now, verse 22, I have given them, that's my people, the glory that you gave me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. So we can share in the glory of God somehow. Not fully. I don't think it's that Shekinah glory, but in that, insofar as we live for Jesus, and take on the character of Jesus, we reflect God's glory. We have God's glory when we imitate Jesus. And so because of that connection, that overflow of God's glory, in a sense, is for our good. And that's why living in tune with the Father, that is the good life. That is the right life. That is the best life you can have. And friend, if things aren't going well for you, if things aren't flowing, i got to tell you, that's when things will start flowing for you. When there's that alignment between you and your Creator. That alignment was perfect in the beginning. It was broken in sin so that we want to go our own way. And that original sin, it's the ultimate cause of our own brokenness and all the chaos and the brokenness in our world. And of course, God didn't need to fix that. God didn't need to repair that brokenness. God was fine on His own. Nothing can rock God. He's God. But He didn't leave it alone. He graciously chose to reach out and in Jesus Pull us sinners back so that in Jesus, 
For all who believe and turn to him, recognizing their brokenness, God's glory overflows to us for our good. And that's why Jesus came and went to the cross. So if you turn to Jesus this morning, you receive God's goodness, and you even receive his glory somehow, as verse 22 says. With God, with the Father in Jesus Friends, that is a glorious life. And my urgent prayer this morning is that each one of you has that life, that you know it. And I invite you to give your life to Jesus who went to the cross to repair that relationship so that we can live in the glory of God and we can live it out and we can worship Him to His glory in church, in all of life. So the centrality of prayer, the glory of God, and how God designed it all for the good of his people, for your good. That's some of what I believe Jesus is showing us in this incredible prayer here. And we're going to see a little bit more next week. Amen.